chapter. Here we go. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 39, is what you heard me say earlier. (laughs) I don't know what you thought you heard. Here's what it says. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? They didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Parenting Jesus. Could you imagine what could possibly be more difficult? Someone might say, well, parenting a very difficult child, a disobedient child is is challenging. I I would agree, that is challenging. I might suggest it would be more challenging to parent a child who never, ever, ever makes a mistake. As a parent, every now and then, it is so rare, I can't remember the last time I made a mistake, but every now and then as parents, you know, we do something incorrect and our kids know it, and you know what it's like having to own that, right? Me either, because we don't. We tell them they're wrong, And they can discover that we were wrong when they're adults. There's no reason to admit the truth now, right? No. But what is that when when your kid never makes a mistake and he knows everything? That would be a challenge. That would be a challenge. So we're going to take a few minutes. Next week, we're going to return back to our study of Philippians, which we have been uh, working through this fall. We took a break from it for the Advent season. Uh, But this morning, it seemed appropriate to talk a little bit about this occasion in the Scripture Uh, where we have a discussion of Christ before adulthood. And it's an interesting story, and I think it's filled with insight that's important. So we're going to begin, like we said, did before, in verse 39. It says, they, that is Mary and Joseph, in verse 39 of um, Luke 2, they performed everything according to the law of the Lord. What this means is after a child was born... There was a number of things you had to do at the temple, uh, offerings to offer, uh, law code to follow, and Mary and Joseph followed everything that was required by the law after having a child. And what we need to understand about Mary and Joseph in parenting Jesus is one of the things we see is their willingness to obey. Humble obedience is a, a characterization of 
uh, their life. And you say, well, wouldn't that be the expectation? And I might suggest uh, not necessarily. Uh, Mary and Joseph knew that Jesus was the Messiah. They had been told as much from the angels. The angels had told them, your son is, uh, name him Jesus. He's going to save people from their sins. And so uh, Jesus, his life from the very beginning was characterized with a sense of destiny. Here is where his life is going to go. And Mary and Joseph might have taken a little bit of comfort and said, well, his, this is the Messiah. Everything's going to go the way it ought to go. So we can just sit back and watch. We can be passive and just see what God is going to do. But Mary and Joseph in their life is intertwined with the life of Christ. Because as parents, they had parts of the law they needed to obey uh, as a function of parenting. And Jesus, as the Messiah, was intended to come to fulfill the law. Here's what we need to understand about Jesus' life. Jesus' life is a life that was intended to fulfill all things. Everything that was predicted about him in the Old Testament, he was intended to fulfill the law. He was intended to fulfill everything the people of Israel were supposed to be but weren't. Jesus is a life of fulfillment, a life of destiny, and Mary and Joseph understood they had a role in that as well as his parents. If you want to, you can flip over to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. It won't be on the screen because I wanted to make you work. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. I'm going to read uh, 17 to 20. Here's what Jesus says there. I'll begin reading as you're finding your way over there. Jesus said this, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Some might say, well, Jesus came, he took care of everything, so he came to abolish the law. And Jesus says very clearly, did you hear what he said? Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I have come to fulfill them. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus is saying this, here is the law of God. The law of God is good. The law of God is righteous. The law of God describes what God is like. And Jesus says, I have not come to destroy the law. I've just simply come to fulfill the law. Now, raise your hand if you're able to fulfill the law. No liars, good. Everybody kept their hand down. Good, good work. So you say, well, how could he possibly fulfill the law? And this is Jesus' whole point. He is the only one who is able to fulfill the law. Jesus fulfills the law on our behalf. He lives his life perfectly, covers every area of the law completely on our behalf. So as our substitute, he has fulfilled the law for us. So if you are in Christ by faith, have you fulfilled the law? Yes, you have, because Christ fulfilled it for you and on your behalf. We don't believe we don't have to obey the law. We just believe Christ fulfilled it for us. That's a pretty good deal, by the way. So Jesus says, I have come to fulfill it, and as our substitute, he fulfills it for us. Look at verse 19, Matthew chapter 5. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter 
the kingdom of heaven. So he says this very plainly. There is a call for the people of God to live according to God's standards and his purposes. I, this is a, a dirty word in our culture, but here it is. Are you ready? It's called obedience. It's doing what you're told, not because what you want to do, but because the person who told you what to do is, has authority. And God says, I will give you instruction, and you ought to follow it. And then you and I, if we're smart, would say this. I'm really bad at being obedient. Anyone else? Yes, well, fantastic. So this works out perfectly for us. We are called into obedience and we can't do it. Jesus comes and fulfills the law for us. And so as our substitute, it is as though we were obedient. But do we say, therefore, obedience is useless? No, because we love the one who has fulfilled it for us. So even in our brokenness and our imperfection, we still ought to have hearts that desire to do things God's way. We still ought to have hearts that say, man, I wish I could live like Jesus, but I'm not very good at it. So Jesus is our substitute. Look at what it says in verse 20. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What he is saying here is unless your righteousness is perfect, you will never get into heaven. And for, again, for most of us, that would make us think, well, then how in the world am I ever going to get into heaven if I can have somebody else's righteousness? So what Jesus' life is, his life is a life of fulfillment, to fulfill the law on our behalf, to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf, to give a resurrection life on our behalf. This is his whole purpose, and we see this started even in infancy when his parents go to the temple to follow through because his life is a life of fulfillment. Maybe a quick question for you. When you were born, this may be the case for some, but it wasn't for me. After you were born, did your parents take you to the temple to offer the appropriate offerings on your behalf? No, for most of us, the temple didn't exist. I don't know how old you are, but the temple was destroyed a long time ago. I'm not saying any of you were around. I'm just estimating. <laughs> so no, already we're, we're already. You say, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. How can I be held accountable for something my parents were supposed to do? You, you can be because that's the law. So what do you need? You need somebody who fulfilled the law for you, even as an infant. You need somebody who is righteous for you, even as a teenager, even as an adult. All of us need somebody who is perfectly obedient for us. And what the Bible makes clear from the earliest stages of Jesus' life, he is that fulfiller for us. We don't have to carry the weight of fulfilling the law because he already did it for us. We have the privilege of living a life of obedience just because God puts it in our heart to desire to do so. Not to earn his favor, not to become righteous, not to get the things we want. We get the privilege of worshiping God through obedience just because we like the guy. Because Jesus' life is a life of fulfillment. Okay, let's go back to Luke chapter 2. Hopefully you still have your finger in it. Luke chapter 2, look what it says. They performed everything according to the law of the Lord, and they returned to Galilee, their own town of Nazareth, and Jesus grew, and he became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So as he grew, he 
uh, was filled with wisdom. He was strong, both this in character as well as physically, and the favor of God was on him. When you look in the Old Testament, the people of God were operating under a covenant. The covenant was very simple. It said, when you obey God, you can anticipate him, his fulfillment of his blessings to you. In fact, when they went into the promised land, one of the things God told Joshua to do, when you get in and you conquer the land, I want you to get half your people and put them on one mountain. I want you to get your other half of the people and put them on the other mountain. And on the one half, have these people recite all the blessings of God if we fulfill the law. And they would yell out all the blessings of God, okay? And they would yell it across to the other people. It was kind of like a response church service, right? The other side, what they were supposed to do was yell out all the things that would happen to them if they disobeyed the law. Which side do you want to be on? The blessings has a lot more fun. Yeah, that's, I mean, the other side, what a downer. You will be kicked from the land. Your crops will fail. Your animals will die. Pestilence, mold, mildew. The Babylonians will invade. All kinds of bad things. And the reason this was done, say, if you obey God's ways, then you will live in God's ways and you will experience God's blessing. If you abandon God's ways, then you will experience what it's like to separate yourself from God. What we discover in Christ, even as a child, the favor of God. And what this is alluding to, having just referenced the fulfillment of the law, Jesus was experiencing the blessing of God from the blessing side of the mountain because he was fulfilling the law perfectly. So all through his life, he was experiencing God's closeness because he fulfilled everything God called him to do perfectly. The favor of God was upon him because he was, he was God in the flesh, living his life as the perfect Israelite, as the perfect human, never making a mistake. And so he never experienced any of the cursings that the people of Israel experienced. He had the favor of, of God upon him throughout his life. He was blessed. Israel wasn't. And you're saying, well, when, how was Israel not blessed? Have you read the Old Testament? It doesn't end with a happy ending. It ends with them needing a Savior. And Jesus comes to live his life the way Israel never could. He came to live his life the way you and I never could, to experience all the blessings of God, so as our substitute, we could have the blessing of God's presence in our life, not because we earn it, but because we are in Christ, the law fulfiller. He was blessed, therefore we experience the favor of God because of Christ. Not only that, Jesus went to the cross. He lives his life perfectly. He has no reason to experience the cursings of God because he has never disobeyed. He voluntarily receives those on our behalf so that we don't have to. So why should we anticipate that God would show us favor? Because we are in Christ. Why would we anticipate God would never put on us the curses of disobedience? Because we are in Christ and he has already received those things. Jesus and his parents participated in the fulfilling of everything Jesus was supposed to be for our benefit, that we could have God's favor and avoid the punishment our sin deserved. Here's the question I might ask about you before we move into the meat and potatoes of the story, is this. Jesus 
because of his close relationship with the Father, desired to fulfill everything God had called him to be. And the description of his life is this. He grew in wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. He was filled with wisdom by the power of the Spirit. Just a quick question. Would you like that for your life? Would you like your life to be characterized by wisdom by the Spirit of God? Would you like your life to be characterized by the favor of God being upon you? And the answer is we should desire that. And God offers us those things through faith in Christ. It also calls us, though, to live in Christ in obedience. Wisdom is understanding that God's ways are better than our ways. And are we willing to set aside our own agenda to live a life of wisdom and joy in the Spirit? Parenting Jesus, humble obedience, Jesus fulfilled the law. Uh, I'm going to put a verse up on the screen. It's John 14, 6. John 14, 6. You may have this verse uh, memorized. Here's what it says. Is that familiar to you? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So here's what we need to recognize as we move to the next set of, uh, next part of the story. To know what must be done, we have to understand what is true, and what Jesus makes clear is all truth is from God. To know what must be done, we have to understand what is true, and all truth is of God. So let's look at the next uh, few verses in Luke chapter 2. Look at verse 41. So his parents went every year uh, to uh, the Jerusalem for Passover. Uh, so they lived uh, in Nazareth, about 90 miles from the north of Jerusalem. They'd have to walk to the south to Jerusalem, however long that would take, probably a little while. Now, you'll notice in the Bible that it says they went up according to the custom at the end of verse 42. Uh, you may be used to uh, compass directions. You go up to Portland and you go down to Southern California because it's north and south. And that's not how they did it in uh, the Middle East, especially in Bible times. It, when you're walking somewhere, the, the up you're more concerned with, uh, with is elevation change. Uh, when you're driving in a car, you notice, hey, we're up to 5,000 feet. When you're walking in a car, you're going, oh, my goodness. So they're going up to Jerusalem. The good side, I mean, going home is all downhill, uh, essentially, right? Uh, so they're going because Jerusalem is up on a hill. Generally, whenever in the Bible, uh, they're going to Jerusalem, said they're going up to Jerusalem. So they walk down to Jerusalem, and now 12 years have gone by, and they've been doing this every year. They go down to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Remember what Passover is for? Passover was that great celebration where the people of Israel remember they were freed from slavery in Egypt, that God told them to put blood on their doorposts, and the angel of death would come, and the, and the angel avoided the households that had the blood painted on the doorposts, and that night they were freed from slavery in, in Egypt, and, and they escaped from Egypt and were headed to the promised land. So they celebrated Passover every year uh, with Christ as he was growing. Now he's up to uh, 12 years old. And, and we have to understand a little bit about Passover. And I, there's a, kind of a downer. I don't want to be a downer, but it's a bit of a downer. So here we go. Um, you might celebrate an anniversary of something that was kind of sad in your life. Uh, say, for example, you, you uh, were very ill, but you got better. And so you might celebrate an anniversary. Many people will say this every year. It's like 10 years cancer-free, and it's a celebration, isn't it? 
Yes, it is. If you've had it, you're like, yes, celebration, 10 years, cancer-free. However, it's also a bit of a, there is a bit of a, yeah, but I had cancer. So it's a celebration. Yay, I'm cancer-free. But it also is still of a reminder, but that was a, I don't like that memory. And this is what Passover was like. Passover was, yay, we're free from Egypt. What, we were enslaved in Egypt? Now fast forward to the people in Jesus' time, and they are essentially enslaved to Rome. So they're going to celebrate Passover. Yay, we're free from Egypt. Who cares? We want to be free from Rome. And so even though it was a celebration, it was a celebration that was sort of freighted with all kinds of heaviness. And, and even a sense of anticipation. Maybe if we keep celebrating the Passover, God will deliver us from our, our enemies again. Of course, God plans to do it. But it has nothing to do with Rome. So they... Uh, worshiping faithfully with Christ their child, even though they're recognizing that they haven't been freed yet. And maybe a sense of, of anticipation is coming. So they go to the Passover, and the feast would end, and, and it lasted several days. So they ate, and they would hang out with friends, and it was a bit of a party. And then they would all caravan back home. And, uh, of course, as parents, many of us are really don't understand Mary and Joseph at this point. Uh, they left, and, um, and they left their kid behind. I, don't, I have a nice way of saying that, but um, that you could sort of think of the mom in Home Alone. Like, how, how is that possible? And then, and then, you know, she's being comforted by... Is it John Candy? In the... We watch it. We just watched it. And he's like, hey, don't worry about it. This guy over here hasn't seen his kid in 10 years. You're fine. Like, this is not helpful. I left my kid at home and flew to, uh, to Paris. And so we throw Mary and Joseph under the bus. We understand family functioned much different than, than, we, than it does now. A family, an extended family, were so connected. In fact, many of their residences were, uh, were, would stay connected over time. You're, when you would get married, you would build your part of your house just sort of connected to mom and dad's house. And there would be uh, areas where everybody was very connected, and very used to this sense. Uh, he's not with us, but he's with uh, aunt and uncle. He's with, with grandma and grandpa and all these others. So it was very customary as they're going, but uh, they get on their journey. They get a day's journey in, and they realize he's not here. He's not with grandma and grandpa. He's not with the aunt and uncle. He's not with anybody. Jesus is not here. And so they have to make their way back to Jerusalem to try and find Jesus. Now, Again, I'm, my, my mind is a little warped, but you know that. Like, one thing to lose your kid in Safeway, right? You know, sort of, you, we've all done that. We've panicked. Uh, where's, where's the kid? It's, it's a whole other thing to lose your kid in the Middle East with no cell phone and to realize he's the Messiah. Like, don't you feel a bit of, <laughs> we've lost the Messiah. I, I, as a parent, I would feel... Anyway, I don't know what they were going through, probably normal parent stuff. But they made their way back, uh, and it says they uh, looked for him for three days. But if you do the math, you'll understand. They had traveled out for a day. They had to travel back for a day. The de then the day they arrived, they looked for him and found him. They didn't have to necessarily search through Jerusalem for three days uh, because certainly the temple would have been one of the first places they would have gone to. You're searching three days. Did you try the temple? Oh, that never occurred to us. That probably was one of the first places they went. It had more to do with the fact that they had to travel back. But what's amazing is what they find him doing. Having a discussion with the religious leaders. 
He's asking questions and answering questions. This is a back and forth, a 12-year-old boy having a robust, theological, law-driven discussion with the religious leaders. It wasn't merely him trying to get information. This was a, a situation that you might find in those times of an educational setting, where education is uh, done through question and answers. But in this moment, as people are observing, they start to lose track of which one is the teacher. Is it the Pharisee or the religious leader or the scribe, or is it this 12-year-old kid? Because he's asking questions, not necessarily to gain information, but to make a point. And, and, and they're astonished, and they're amazed at his, at his insight and his, his wisdom and, and his desire for the truth of God. Jesus, as a 12-year-old, was delighting in just simply chewing over the truth of who God is and how he has made himself known in the Torah. He wasn't doing this just because that's what good 12-year-olds do. This is what he wanted to do. He wanted to discuss and chew on and think about the truth of God because the truth comes from God and makes God known. And his parents find him there in the temple, displaying and living in the wisdom of God and his love for the truth of God. So they went their journey and they found him and he was asking questions and he was gauging in the truth of God and, and we discover that he had the heart of what Passover was about and his parents had sort of missed it. So let me explain it this way. Mary and Joseph go to Passover and when Passover is over, it's time to leave. Jesus is going to Passover because he wants to hang out with his father. And when Passover is over, his desire to hang out with his father hasn't stopped. So we see a, just a slight difference between Joseph and Mary and Jesus here. Joseph and Mary, a bit of ritual in engaging with God. I engage with God through ritual. When the ritual is over, I go home and return to my normal life. Passover is three or four days, maybe a week, and get that done. I can punch the Passover list thing off my list and then go back and I got to get that table done for a client, Joseph might be thinking. And Jesus is going, no, the Passover is intended for me to connect with the Father. Passover is ended. And he says, why would we leave? Why would we leave? Think of it this way. Throughout the entire Old Testament, the temple is intended to communicate God's desire to be with his people. The Passover is intended to communicate God's means for us to be with his people through blood sacrifice. So the Passover is God's invitation to himself. He says, come, let's hang out together. And Joseph and Mary, and this is very typical for most religious people, honestly, including many of us, God says, look, come to me, and I'm going to tell you how to connect with me in a relatable, uh, loving way. And we say, Okay, so that's like five days, right? Because I've got something Tuesday. I've got a thing. I've got a... So how do I punch out this ritual so that I can I get my religion done? So God, we're good, right? Okay, good. And God's approach to this is wholly different. He's going, I, I just wanted to hang out. I just wanted... To, but Jesus gets at the heart of it. Jesus understands this is more than just a religious ritual to celebrate some centuries-old situation. This is an opportunity by the grace of God to connect with the Father. 
And the way that Jesus did that was understanding and enjoying the truth of God and the word of God. Jesus was engaging with the word of God as a function of his engagement with the Father himself. And he was enjoying it. Jesus understood what faithful worship looked like. Engaging with God in the truth of who God is. The God who saves people and calls them to himself. This is the great reality many of us have to confront in our own life. Did we want to get saved to avoid hell or gain heaven? Or did we want to receive forgiveness of sins to gain God? And Jesus gets at the heart of it. Salvation is primarily intended for us to gain God. Secondary benefit, we avoid hell and enjoy heaven forever. However, I might put it this way, and we've said this before, if you're not interested in knowing God, you will not be interested in heaven. That pretty much is all heaven is. God himself. Perfect communion with God for all of time. Parenting Jesus, understanding faithful worship. Worship is an opportunity to connect with who God is through the truth of how God has made himself known through his word. A little bit of a difficult truth that uh, Jesus' parents had to confront. Jesus' father is God, and Joseph was playing a role of steward in his fatherhood. Let's continue the story. Verse 47. Everyone who heard Jesus, this is verse 47, they were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they were hearing the questions he was asking and hearing the answers he was giving, they were amazed at what was going on. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? How had Jesus treated his parents? Casual indifference, they might think disrespectfully, disobediently. Mary doesn't understand why Jesus has treated them in such a fashion. If you're going to stay in the temple, why don't you let us know? Why have you treated it this way? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. What did she just say? Pay attention, because this is how Luke writes it. Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. True or false? False. His father knew exactly where he was the whole time. And his father wasn't searching for him. He was with him. Jesus said to them, you could imagine the 12-year-old, you can imagine as a parent not losing your mind. Uh, I mean, uh, however you might express frustration. Jesus said to them, why were you looking for me? What? I'm sure you wouldn't say that let me explain to you. Okay. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Okay. Mary said, your father and I were in great distress. And Jesus answers with, I was with my father. And notice Joseph isn't saying anything, but what do you think he is thinking and feeling in that moment? That's a dagger. I don't care how religious this guy was, how faithful this guy was, and certainly he was all of these things. Everything we know about this guy in Scripture, he is somebody who obeyed God by faith. And so I have no reason to believe he had any kind of spite or anger. However, to say that moment wasn't painful would misunderstand fatherhood. Here in this moment, Jesus says, I am with my father. He has known where I am this whole time. 
And Jesus is asking them, what I don't get is why you guys haven't figured that out yet. Parenting Jesus means missing expectations. Mary and Joseph reference for parenting Jesus was parenting. One of the key jobs of parents. Now, if you're taking notes, you're going to want to jot this down. One of the key jobs of parents is don't lose your children. It's like top 10, I think. One of the most important things. And so their frame of reference for parenting is we've lost our kid. And, and our job as parents is to, to take care of our children, especially when this is the child who is the Messiah. Jesus' point of reference is not the same as theirs. Jesus' point of reference is his father. All he's asking Mary and Joseph to do is to parent with the same point of reference that he has. That's why he's asking this question. Why were you looking for me? If you had the same point of reference as me, the father, there would be no need to search. Why? You wouldn't have left the temple either. Because you would have wanted to be with the Father more, just like I wanted to be with the Father more. But their point of reference was parenting, not the Father. And he was just simply calling them back into having the right point of reference for their life. Devotion to the Father. He's saying, my devotion is to the Father. No disrespect to Joseph, but his Father is God, because Jesus is the Son of God, God himself, in the flesh. And he wanted them to understand their role in, in his life from the same perspective, from the, the Father. Their purpose in their life was just parenting. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 our purpose together is the will of the Father. And if our will together is the will of the Father, it's not did we accomplish a religious ritual and can we now go home and get back to normal life. If our perspective is the will of the Father is what ways in this moment can I delight in connection with the Father? And for Jesus at that time was, let's stay in the temple. Why do we got to get back home? There's no reason to hurry home. Look what it says after this in verse 50. They didn't understand what he was telling them. It means what it says. They had, okay, can we go home now? They just didn't get it. He went down with them, and they went back to Nazareth, and he was submissive to them. And, and Luke is telling us Jesus wasn't a, re a rebel. Jesus wasn't using his deity as a reason to disobey his parents. He fulfilled his role to his parents, just like every son should. His mother, though, treasured these things up in her heart, wondering what this might mean. Look at verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. Jesus was oriented to the Father, and he was graced with the blessing and favor of the Father. His focus was on our redemption. Jesus, we might suggest here at the temple, desired the Father in a way Israel never did. And if we're honest with our own lives a little bit, Jesus desired the Father in a way you and I don't. He desired God just simply for God's sake. He desired connection with the Father just simply because connection with the Father is a blessing, not because of the what the Father 
offers. All right, parenting Jesus, humble obedience, faithful worship, uh, missed expectations. Just a couple of quick questions maybe to think about before we close with uh, two or three songs. When it comes to Jesus, is the way, the truth, and the life, I think this is a fair question. Does the truth of God amaze us? That's what the people noticed about Jesus in the temple. They heard his answers and his questions, and they were amazed. Uh, does the truth of God amaze us? When we engage with the truth of God, either yeah, during a sermon like this one or uh, when we're reading our Bible on our own, are we amazed with the truth of God? Or what maybe tends to be our default mode is, are we searching for God's truth to find all those ways in which God affirms what we already believe? We'll read the Bible to make sure what I believe is true. And the parts that challenge what I believe, well, I'm going to flip over those and assume somebody else understands it better and understands it in a way that affirms everything I've already believed. The way God has called us to engage with the truth of his word is to be amazed at it, to read through the scripture and engage with it and say, God has saved sinners. God has provided the way that you and I can relate to him and his truth uh, is incredible. Now, it's not so easy to just say, well, I don't always find it that amazing. I was talking with somebody this morning in their Bible reading, had them in one of those sections where it's a list of names that are impossible to pronounce. Have you ever done that in your Bible reading? Like, I have no idea what this means. I can't pronounce any of these names. Um, so I'm not really amazed by this. Again, this is a function of the Holy Spirit. In those moments, which will probably be frequent, that's it. God, show me what's going on here. God, I want to be amazed with the truth of your word, and I'm not. Give me your spirit that I might be amazed with the truth of what you're communicating here. Secondly, let's think about the parents of Jesus, Joseph and Mary, and how they were astonished at his actions. And what we should recognize is our ways aren't God's ways. Maybe throughout your life you've had things happen, and you say, what is God up to here? I don't get it. If that's not you, I don't know what's going on. Then you're living a blessed life, I guess. But every now and then, something will go on, and you'll say, uh, God, I'm not sure what channel you're on, but this is horrible. Can we do something different than whatever you're doing here? And we're astonished. Really, God? Really? This is how we're going to roll it out. Our ways aren't God's ways. The question maybe we could ask ourselves, if our point of reference were able to be shifted from uh, our comfort, from our personal desires and agenda from our own personal quest for significance or our own personal quest for happiness, if our point of reference could be shifted off of ourselves and instead settle on the Father, what would change? And maybe what I would suggest as you're sitting here this morning, if I could, if I could move the needle off of me and settle it onto the Father the way Jesus did, what's one thing that, you know, ought to, that I would expect would need to fall by the wayside? If my perspective was not on my agenda, but was on the agenda of the Father, just like Joseph and Mary, when their, when their lives got lined up with the agenda of the Father, it wasn't what they had planned. Well, what would it look like in your life? And maybe you say, well, I have no idea. Then, then that's a matter of prayer. God, show me what would change in my life if, if the needle of my reference got off of me and was on you instead. What would it look like in terms of the things I do or don't do? What would it look like in terms of my engagement with prayer and the Word of God?
Lastly, amazed, astonished affection. To be like Jesus is to love God like him. And I think a question we would ask when we see Jesus as a 12-year-old settled in the temple, making himself comfortable with the Father is, why would we want to be anywhere else other than with the Father? And there's plenty of reasons, mostly having to do with our flesh and our selfishness. But we can pray, God, show me the glory of who you are, that my chief desire would be to be with you, wherever I might be, amazed, astonished, and love the Father. Parenting Jesus, boy, that would be a challenge, wouldn't it? 